This week on Semi-Intellectual Musings. We crack a few beers and put on our tinfoil hats in our longest episode yet. From covert government cover-ups to aliens in the desert to dead celebrities, nothing stays a secret for long. We cut through anxieties of things unknown to get at the truthiness. This is Networks of Conspiracies. What, what do you think uh, Bigfoot would sound like if uh, if you would have to speak like Bigfoot? You know what, Matt? I was a really big fan of the movie Harry and the Hendersons. So, yeah, no, I want to give it a rewatch. I think uh, that might be a rewatch with Mel. So uh, my, my did, Bigfoot did... would be like, oh, hey, guys, uh, welcome uh, to my woods. Uh, mind if I dig around in your cooler for a bit? It sounds like a big happy bear. Yeah, exactly. That's what I think Bigfoots basically are. They're... Um, they're like somewhere in between a giant primate that um, managed to like make it through the last ice age, or um, or some sort of like mutated bear that the government has like. Created. I think it's just some hairy guy who fucking runs around the woods butt naked all the time. <laughs> Have you heard that Bigfoot actually has the ability to move between dimensions, and that's why it yeah. makes him so elusive? Yeah, yeah, yeah that's a pretty. That. Uh, that's a pretty convenient little, uh, little yeah, caveat. Like, oh, yeah, so it's this big, hairy fucking thing that all of a sudden has the technology to move between dimensions. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's that's believable. I yeah. can believe it now. But I will say, man, I come from those uh, from that side of the country, and those woods are thick and deep, and I can see why um, oh, yeah, for finding sure. a body or finding footprints even are very difficult. So, um, And sometimes when you're walking in the woods, um, you know, it's not like I follow, like, human footprints tracks or anything like that i'm not psycho but um you know you see animal prints that just disappear in the middle of the uh, trail so i can yeah. see a big thing like that because it's just so wet right yeah I, I you know what do you think about bigfoot man bigfoot phil only <clears throat> believes in think, yeti but not bigfoot <laughs> yeah yetis are real yeah of course y- yetis uh and narwhals are fucking real yeah <laughs> I so but uh Bigfoot, you know, I think if you did a lot of meth and you looked at your neighbor from the right angle on a on a late night, yeah, yeah, I could see Bigfoot there. <laughs> you know, like if you're running around in Southern California and you're just fucking stoned out of your mind, you're gonna see a Bigfoot. Yeah. Not on my finest nights, but I have been known to look like a rambling Bigfoot when I'm uh camping. Yeah. Stomping around, yeah, tripping on kinda, stuff. Yeah, exactly. And you kind of walk around in the cooler. <laughs> walk kind of like a gorilla ish, yeah, exactly. and you're just like stumbling yeah. everywhere, and you just look, yeah, you look yeah. like a fucking Bigfoot. Yeah, and I have a lustrous coat as well when I take oh, my shirt okay. off. A lustrous. Yeah, something to look forward to next summer. Welcome to Semi Intellectual Musings. I'm your co host, Philip Primo, and I'm honorably joined by Matthew Sanderson. Matt, it has been a tough week for me, as you know. If you've been with us before, You'll know that I'm trying to write my PhD. That isn't always easy, to say the least. Uh, some say it's a labor of love. I'm not sure. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. Go I'm not on. sure I'd want their love, to be honest with you. Yeah, I know. It's uh, a tough love, man. <laughs> I'm pretty tired, uh, stressed, malnourished. Uh, I'm drinking again. I'm smoking way too much. Ah, good for you. Yeah. Yeah. My back hurts. Uh, my eyes are strained from the computer work. And uh, I got this massive paper cut at the library. <laughs> 
Matt, it was gushing blood everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> like, it was really gross. Wound. So, so I'm at the index cards in the basement. There's uh, still looking, index yeah, cards? Yeah, for the microfiche. That's in, wow, that's so cute. Yeah, so I leave a whole bunch of blood on the fucking index cards. <laughs> so, and then I had to return a book, so I left like a smudge of blood on the return card. Oh, that's awesome. So I'm really sorry, Evan. The trail um, of tears. <laughs> the, it was my trail of tears for the day. Uh, but having difficulty writing and these kind of accidents at the university led me to think about uh, what this podcast is all about. I of mean, course it did. <laughs> I mean, we've tried to explain it a bunch of times, and I think each time it's been something a little different so far. So here's uh, what I'm going to do. Here's what I think we're doing this week. What I'm going to do is kind of list them off, okay? Sure, go So um, I think uh, we start with something that interests us, Matt and I, books, movies, music, sports, ideas, things that we've heard the cool kids are doing. Uh, and then uh, Matt and I talk about it, usually over a beer or two, sometimes three. And, you know, most of the time we find it interesting just as a thing on its own. I mean, like hour-long talks we've had about the most mundane shit. Like, <laughs> it's actually quite incredible how long we can just sit there and talk. Um, but then we think, oh, okay, well, how could we look at this from a social science, humanities, and arts perspective? And then we nerd out uh, a while, for a while over it. <laughs> for um, sometimes too long. Yeah, so, like, yeah. Anyway, so I, uh, like, you know, I come from a varied background. Uh, I'm more sociological. Matt, uh, I think, comes from a background that could easily be said to be more anthropological. Uh, so I'll drop some social theory. Matt will inevitably say something is phenomenological. <laughs> I'll say something about relativism, and then we're just off, right? We have an episode. Yeah. Um, but for all our differences, we have common interests that have come to be cornerstones here on the show. So a mutual love for most things history, a That's willingness true. to dig deep into issues, and to go beyond common interpretations, beyond common sense. Uh, and really, our desire is to nerd out and help others do the same. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we've found a good metaphor to explain this approach has been like joining us for some drinks at the local campus pub. You don't need to bring your notes, no notebooks, but we do hope you learn something. Uh, we also hope that you'll join in our discussions because we really don't want to do these alone all the time. Uh, we're not always right, but we do promise to give you our honest researched opinions. When we know too little about something, we find someone who does know a lot more and bring them on to talk with us as we've done a few times now, actually. Um, so here's a little disclaimer that I both have, uh, that Matt and I both has uh, for you. Uh, we both have spent time in academia. That sounds like prison time, like hard time. <laughs> Uh, maybe it is. Maybe it is. Yes. <laughs> uh, but here on this show, we sort of ditch that whole academic facade game, uh, which is why it's semi-intellectual. We don't take ourselves too seriously, and sometimes the show gets a little not safe for work. Um, if I didn't, if we didn't do these things, uh, we'd be doing a Coursera or masterclass course or something entirely different, really serious YouTube videos. Maybe I don't know. But this show is designed uh, to be for anyone who's interested in the topics we cover or interested in seeing how the social sciences, humanities, and arts can contribute meaningfully to a discussion. So, with that in mind, you may be asking yourselves, what the hell are these guys going to say about conspiracy theories? Have they gone wacky, fallen off the deep end? Matt, I can assure you I have not. Uh, I, I might have. I am, Matt, <laughs> I am in, I'm sane and in control. Don't See? believe it for a second. I have the foresight of a fox, Matt. I have come to record the show with my tinfoil hat and my police scanner, all set up to listen to the CIA and the FBI channels. They use different ones than the dopes at the local police station. You know that. Um, I've also hermetically sealed this room so that they don't listen to us through the smoke detectors. And Matt, I've made sure not to use tap water in the tea that we're drinking. 
Uh, they put chemicals in there that will make your eyes see only shades of green and convince you to buy stuff on Amazon. I'm sure of it. <laughs> or maybe it's uh, shades of red, and then uh, maybe U2 is behind the whole fluoride. It could uh, be. Fluoride scandal. Could be, shades, <laughs> could be shades of gray, and then they make you buy some like uh, sex toys or something. And also know. these uh, these blankets on the wall. I imagine you got tinfoil to wrapped. keep out the radiation. Oh, is that why? That, yeah. So the tinfoil is for the aliens, oh. and then the blankets is for the radiation. Oh, I see. Okay, and that's why we have a little bit of a fold in the blankets this time to like there, kind of throw the, the waves off. Yeah. It's the be- so uh, I can't get into it. Sorry. Now, no, but... don't tell them. Actually, maybe maybe we'll just. We've said that. too much. Yeah. Well, yeah, I, th- I think we have said too much. So, uh, Phil, this isn't exactly what we're talking about today, but it's also sort of exactly what we're talking about today. (laughs) We're talking about conspiracy theories. Um, So uh, because Phil has been so busy with the work on the PhD, I sort of took the lead on organizing this one. Um, I sort of laid it out chronologically, um, but I also tried to organize it around some themes. Um, We're going to start out with some Cold War conspiracies, and I want to really get into um, government and medicine and how the conspiracies crystallized around that. Um, We're specifically going to talk about MKUltra in there, something I'm really excited to talk about. Um, Then we're going to get into the 80s and talk about the sort of social and cultural and political context of the time and how we can look at conspiracies and understand it better. Then we're going to get into the 90s, and these are the conspiracies that Phil and I know so well. Um, We're going to talk about Kurt Cobain, Biggie, Tupac, Princess Diana. And then we're going to finish off with some 9-11 New World Order sort of stuff. Before we... Okay, so uh, it dawned on me when I was walking my Shih Tzu, but I got a great friend or foe. It's a dog, yes. Uh, my little doggy Friday. Um, I got a great friend or foe for you, Phil. Um, pea meal bacon. Now, many people confuse pea meal bacon with back bacon. We're not talking about the same thing. Pea meal bacon is the one with the white, disgusting glop on the outside uh, rim. So I'm not a big fan of pea meal bacon. No. But Philip, what do you think? No, I hate it, man. You do? I hate it. Didn't really? I th- so uh, I'm from Quebec. Grew up in Quebec. We don't have female baking in Quebec. That's um, weird. I thought it was like a Quebec thing. No, like a staple. No, it's not a Quebec thing. Uh, good. So <laughs> good, good job, Quebec. <laughs> my uncle introduced me to it. He from Ontario. You know, brought some over. Whatever. Thought it would be this delicacy for us. Fucking hated the shit. It was horrible. Oh God. Yeah. Like in Quebec, if you like, when you go to the Cabana oh. Sucre. When you just got a shiver thinking about that white shit on the outside. Oh yeah, no, no. <laughs> like if you go to Kamanasuk, you go to a maple shack to have breakfast or whatever. You don't get pea meal bacon no. in, in Ontario. I think you do. Uh, maybe in the rest of Canada you do. In Quebec, you get a nice slice of ham. Yeah, that's what and you it's want. Delicious. Yeah, because then you just pour the maple syrup over top of it, and that's like the maple ham right oh, there. And speaking of pea bacon, what do you put on it? Do you put maple syrup on it? Do you put hot sauce on it? Do you put like what do you put on it? I put a trash can around it. <laughs> <laughs> just dump it right in there, right? Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that was my friend or foe. No, so I feel like it's disgusting. Definitely a foe for me. Interesting, because I picked that thinking that you would like it, because I was under the false assumption that it was a Quebec thing. No, and then sometimes they they do it where like the piece of whatever meat it is, I don't even know what cut it is, yeah. is like uh, it has uh, corn, 
corn all around it. Have you seen it like that? Oh, Where it's no. like, yeah, so it's like a piece of, of flesh with white <laughs> shit around it, and then it's rolled in corn. Uh, well, like, just the way you said flesh there. <laughs> it's just gross. <laughs> That's what it is. Yeah, I know. I know. It just it makes it, gives me an extra little shiver. So I don't know. That's my friend or foe. So I say we both think pretty firmly foe. If anyone has a differing opinion on this, I'd be happy to hear about it because I can't find a single redeeming quality about pea meal bacon. <laughs> no, it's like one of those basic things uh, that I think like, we can agree that we both hate. I mean, it's a lot different than some of the other basic foods that are probably as bad for you. Like I'm thinking when I go bowling, uh, mm. that weird nacho cheese. Yeah. 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 I love, oh, okay. Okay. No, okay, no hold on. Yeah. Okay. I was going to say, cause I like that nacho cheese, man. <laughs> nacho cheese. Yeah. See, that's, that's delicious. It looks bad, Yeah, but it's freaking oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'm there with you on that. Yeah. It's great color as well. But what about when they put, the salsa directly on the nachos because that is something that I didn't know about until I moved to Ontario. And I don't know if it's an Ottawa thing or it was an Ontario thing, but what are your thoughts on salsa on top of nachos? No, I know it's an Ottawa thing. So the is way, it? Okay. yeah, the way As, that I, I always to ask make you. nachos is dry chips and then cheese, uh, maybe onions, layered a bit, yeah. layered. Uh, you could sprinkle some bacon on there, put, put whatever you want. Yeah. Sh- you know, throw that shit in the oven, cook it up, let the cheese melt. Salsa goes on the side. Salsa, sour cream, guacamole, all that stuff on the side. On the side. That's where it belongs, right? Yeah. You dip into it. You don't You don't get your chips all soggy with it. So was it a thing in like Quebec or anything or is it just an Ottawa thing? No, it's think? A, I think it's an Ottawa thing. I've had them in Quebec where the salsa's on it, but that's yeah. just a lazy... Like shitty like, line cook or whatever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's just a lazy way of making it. I find yeah. in Ottawa that you expect to have the, the, the salsa on the chip. Yeah, and then you ask for it on the side and then it comes in this most like disrespectful yeah. little Dixie cup and no. it's just like when am I supposed to do that I can't even fit a chip into that yeah. diameter's all out of whack yeah, so, so salsa, friend or foe, foe. Yeah, okay. foe don't oh. put your fucking salsa on your chips before it's in the huh. oven man it's a good one man we both came down in the same way on this one so we actually like agreed with each other for once yeah. wow that's a nice change uh, before okay so thank you for that uh, before we move on uh, I have to talk about a recent Facebook occurrence Matt okay um, cool so it, it's not really an incident but I'm gonna call it an incident uh, but on Friday, I was leaving some comments on a post in a group, like I do from time to time. And uh, the comments were around sharing Twitter handles. It was like, uh, you know, follow me, I'll follow you. Yeah, I actually saw um, that post. Yeah. yeah, so I did that. Cool. Yeah, pretty uh, benign so far. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Like, uh, so then I was like, hey, peeps, you know, I followed you all on Twitter. Uh, how about you do the same for our Facebook page? Like, you know, follow for follow. It's going to be cool. You know, that's kind of my Facebook so a dude from bombs away podcasts agrees with me he goes okay. yeah you know phil primo great idea and that's bombs away bombs away okay. and i hadn't heard of the show before but uh since he was nice he agreed with me uh i said i'd talk about his show on our next episode because i'm just a fucking nice guy matt <laughs> you just, are a fucking nice guy you know, phil. <laughs> you know that so um i looked through his show and okay it's getting boring no, no, no. I'm, I'm here with you, man. I got you. Yeah, your eyes yeah, I got me. you. No. All right. So I looked through the show and they talked about Angels in the Outfield in their episode oh, three. Oh, cool. Okay. Okay. So I give a listen, right? Uh, I have to say in one word, wow. Really? Uh, Callan, K-A-L-L-A-N, co-host. Uh, she is fucking great. Oh, okay. Cool. Uh, here's a little clip of her introducing herself. Uh, try not to piss your pants. Okay. Let's go do that. We'll, we'll go to Saturday yes. Live. Yes, yes. Realm. Hello. Uh, my name is Callan Zimmerman. I'm a goddamn ray of sunshine, and mm-hmm. you're lucky to have me. 
Oh, that is introduction. Right? People are people are like, like those boots the, were made for walking, they, and that's what they are doing. Immediately, somebody's like gripping their steering wheel, like, "Oh shit! Oh, I'm she paying is attention here to play." Right? You know what, bitch? So the other dudes, meh, like they're all right, whatever. But like uh, lame ass <laughs> jokes that go nowhere, you know, uh, kind of like this joke. But anyway, so the show's really funny. Uh, they listen to bad movies and tell us all about it, right? Oh, cool. Yeah. Uh, did they like Angels in the Outfield? No. Nice. Like yeah. hated it. Not yeah, at okay, all. Good. Tore it to shreds. <laughs> yeah, One of them sucks. fell asleep watching it. One of them didn't even watch it because uh, he just refused. Just refused. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, the episode that he told the other ones to watch, he didn't even watch it. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, yeah, because they think it sucks so much, right? But <laughs> but really, even if it's a really good baseball movie for kids, it's actually a horrible movie for most adults. Like, right, we, right. like we can agree with that, yeah, right? Yeah, like, subjectively bad. Like the Gen yeah. Pop can't handle this movie, man. Right. I get that. Um, so, anyways, so so uh, back to the Twitter feed, right? Okay. Um, I go back to it and Skip from Skip and Josh yeah, our podcast, favorite podcast, our favorite podcast, that he chirped up on the thread. Um, oh, yeah, like the forever lurker he is, waiting on the sidelines for anything sports Whoa. to be dropped on these threads. So he shows up <laughs> and and uh, he plugs his top five movie lists in there and then pieces. Really? Just like, bounces? Just bounces. Like, like a drive-by top five? <laughs> like, flag on the play, buddy. Uh, it was a Twitter swap, not a promo thread. Uh, but whatever. We like you. You're a nice guy. You know, we're going to continue watching your show or listening to your show, watching your feeds. It's like an but, illegal formation. <laughs> it's like, come on, what are you doing? It's like obstruction. <laughs> uh, okay, but we so we got a beer for you then, Skip. Okay, cool. Uh, yeah, so today we'll be sampling a few thematic drinks. Uh, the beer that Matt is uh, about to open uh, comes about 50 kilometers from where we're recording, from Montebello, Quebec. It's called Le Panzu. Uh, it's a beer in honor uh, to remember the last public hanging in Canada, which took place in Hull, just across the river from uh, Ottawa, Ontario. And Matt, the story is very conspiratorial, okay? So this is what happens. The guy gets accused of killing his wife, kids, whatever. They find him guilty. They bring him to be hung. It takes 13 hours and 15 minutes for the guy to die hanging there. Like just hanging there? Hundreds of people are watching. Didn't someone just like pull on his ankles or something? No. They just let him just hang, hang for 13 wow. fucking hours. I mean, that's very literal. Hundreds like, of people came out and like stood there literally watch hanging, him. but yeah. I mean, help the process help, along. Help him along, right? So a couple of toddlers just hanging off so his thighs. So eventually he dies. Right. Uh, they, so they oh, cut shit, him down, really? they cut him down, <laughs> okay. they cut up the rope that he was hung from and distribute it to the crowd oh. that had gathered as a souvenir. Then would the you crowd, take a rope, bro? Would you take a rope? Maybe a little piece. Yeah, I would too. Then the crowd brings the body onto a train, trains the guy back to Montebello and deposits the body back at his parents' house. Like who does that? So anyway, let, let's give this a try. I'm going to explain a little bit more about the beer. Um, let's see. Um, so it's a strong beer. It's a 6.2%, uh, 25 IBU. Uh, it's very dark in color. Yeah. Uh, it almost looks like a, almost like a, a, a flat Coke or something like kind that. Kind of. Yeah. yeah, yeah. It's uh, it a little light. lighter than a Guinness though. Yeah, for sure. Let's give it a taste. Oh, that's tasty. Ooh, that's really good. I'm um, not normally a fan of dark beers, but that's really tasty. Yeah. So anyways, uh, go listen mm. to Bombs Away podcast. It's on iTunes and other places. Then uh, listen to their episode three in particular. Uh, then listen to our episode where we do our top five and we give you our top five baseball movies. 
and finish it off uh, with folks who actually know what they're talking about. Skip and Josh podcast. Uh, their blog has their top five. Uh, so mm-hmm. you get, you know. All of them, man. It's almost like a podcast triple play you just pulled there. It's like a promotional triple play, man. That is a promotional like triple that. play. Skip, you'll friend. love this beer as well, man. Uh, it's a great way to finish so doing so about baseball is a great way to finish off the 10 billion games that were in this regular season of major baseball yes and get you ready for some montreal canadians domination matt we don't have subin we don't have markov we don't need him we can still beat the pants off your canucks any day go habs yeah that's actually uh completely true i'm uh i'm looking forward to seeing how many uh losses the canucks can pile up this year Uh, a lot yeah yeah we get that good sweet draft pick if you want to tell us about your favorite baseball movies or maybe predict how many games the Canadians will win uh, or how many, you know, games the Leafs will lose to the Canadians, hint, uh, quite a lot. Yeah, there. probably all of them. Uh, you can connect with us on Twitter at the underscore SIM underscore POD, on Facebook at the SimPod, all one word. You can email us at semiintellectual at gmail.com. We are on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Player FM, Overcast, pretty much any podcaster, podcatcher you use. So make sure to subscribe to get all the latest episodes. And coming soon, as soon as I can edit them, there will be some special bonus content. They're called Patio Sessions. Uh, Matt and I put something together. Cool. Uh, So uh, become or stay subscribed to get those. I think that's it, Matt. I think we can get on with the show. They're always watching. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Today we're going to talk conspiracies and conspiracy theories. But first, etymologically, the word conspiracy is derived from the Latin root conspiriare, which means to agree or to plot. It also comes from the old French word conspiration and the Anglo-Norman French word conspiracy, which came into popular use around the 1300s and carried a similar meaning of being in unanimity or working together. Some accounts use the phrase breathing together as a way of defining conspiracy. The combined phrase conspiracy theory, however, is believed to have first appeared as recently as the 1909. And, of course, there are theories that wonder if the CIA first used the word or started its usage. You know, go figure. The generally accepted definition of a conspiracy is something like a secret plan by a group to do something unlawful or harmful, with the definition expanded to include the act of secretly planning to do something that is harmful or illegal. However, the term has been defined in other ways, which seem far less shadowy and much more sociological, such as to act or work together towards the same result or goal. In this account, we could envision political leaders engaging in conspiracies all the time, even bricklayers, Masons could be called conspirators. Conspiracy theory at its simplest purely means that one speculates or theorizes that a conspiracy may be underway. When proposed under reasonable circumstances, this doesn't have to fall immediately to the fringe. It can be quite logical, but the logic behind conspiracies could be an entire episode on its own. Beyond these somewhat pedantic concerns, today we will argue that by situating conspiracy theories in time and place, by focusing on their context and setting, 
we are provided with a unique view of sociocultural anxieties and political uncertainties, from whole societies to conspiracy theorists who themselves think up and diffuse schemes under the banner, and to those in positions of power and the media who serve to reify or suppress ideas of plotting. At its foundation, theorizing conspiracies is a way for individuals and groups to locate their anxiety about uncertainty and mistrust of forces beyond their control. By looking at conspiracies as placed in time, we can unpack the social, cultural, and political anxieties or fears of peoples in the past and in our present. And by understanding these dimensions better, we can then start thinking about the future society in which we live, the cultural norms in which we engage in, and the political apprehensions and anxieties of our times, and bring some certainty to uncertain futures. Matt, it's one way that the social sciences, humanities, and arts come together, and I'm really excited about this episode. Oh, man, I am too. Um, since early on, I've been fascinated with conspiracies and conspiracy too, theories. Uh, so it's neat that we get the chance to deep dive a uh, little bit more into it here. Okay, man. So I started getting into conspiracy theories when I was maybe like 15 years old. Yeah. Uh, whether it was some uh, silly little TV show or um, I was at the perfect age for the start of the internet. So there was some like conspiracy theorizing yeah, going on in chat yeah. rooms and message yeah, boards yeah. and stuff like this. But for me, um, conspiracy theories was a way of, I think, looking back, a way of sharpening my critical thinking skills. Oh, okay. You know, Um, alongside Marx, uh, conspiracy theories really got me, like, critically analyzing politics, society, and culture, even before I knew what those terms possibly meant. Yeah, for sure. I can see that, So, I don't know. It sort of also, uh, something we'll return to in this episode, I hope, um, it kind of taught me the malleability of truth and fact and fiction as well. So how yeah. you can kind of blend the two. Um, and, you know, like cover-ups. So you start thinking about governments and what they want you to know and what they don't want you to know. So, I don't know. That's kind of like my origin story on conspiracies. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, like, yeah. And you're, what, you're a bit of a rebel. Yeah. Right? So. <laughs> yeah. And I was also, honestly, this just popped in my head, but I was always a contrarian as well. Yeah. So I think that's where this comes from as well. So what about you, Phil? How did you get into conspiracy theories? Uh, honestly, uh, it was from weird TV shows like yeah. when I was a kid. Yeah. Uh, although I hated the X-Files. <laughs> really? I yeah. didn't really like the X-Files either when I was out, man. Yeah, like I remember one night I was so scared uh, from an episode. I asked my brother, uh, who was a lawyer, if he could write to the show to get it canceled. Oh, that's so sweet. <laughs> I was like five. Oh, like, was, that's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, they, they all just kind of looked at me like, oh, <laughs> poor <laughs> little boy. Uh, but in a weird way, uh, it was actually reading Noam Chomsky in late high school, early college that uh, turned me into the whole fantastical world of American plots to overthrow South American leaders and political ties that were couched in these amazing conspiracy conspiratorial tales like oh, okay uh, that's interesting man yeah, chomsky it, i wouldn't have thought of that yeah, yeah it shows chomsky's i guess more political works rather than his linguistic right uh, yeah. kind of career yeah um but really like in a roundabout way it was chomsky who prides himself on facts and references who brought me into this world of secrecy and deception and falsehoods within politics yeah. and yeah so i think like that's one of the things i want to talk about today for, for sure. sure yeah um and like, so I want to talk about secrecy because also as a grad student, uh, I engage with it a bit more and I find just the term like really fascinating. Okay, cool. Uh, so as a nod here, uh, like a really good prophet Carlton, William Walters. Yeah. Totally. Uh, got me interested. Yeah, in, he's awesome. Uh, interested in the term, uh, different and like, uh, the interplay between publicity and secrecy, uh, around oh. some of his works is okay, really interesting. Cool. Yeah. So he's a great prof. He's a really good person as yeah, well. Yeah. Like, he's solid. Yeah. Um, so like. 
the element contained in conspiracy that like quote unquote some turn out to be true. Yeah, yeah. Is is I interesting to me. Oh, okay, cool. That's um, something I picked up on as well. Yeah, sure. so I want to get into that cool. uh, a little bit. And I think lastly, uh, I want to pick up on the role of technology oh, uh, in conspiracies. Okay, good. Um so I, I like I don't think it's always in the classic ways that we think of technology that uh they show up in conspiracies like robots taking over or like the NWO like controlling like uh, weather stations that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. The new world order for those who are uninitiated. Yeah, the new world order. <laughs> um but I want to talk about how networks of truth are created around technologies like newspapers, magazines, the internet, uh PowerPoint presentations. So anybody who watches like YouTube clips sees that all conspiracy theorists for some reason turn to PowerPoint to make slideshows of their little conspiracy theories. I don't know why. That's because um, they used to use like the projection slideshow yeah, back yeah, in the day. Probably. I'm sure. Hey, look, uh, see that white dot up in the sky. That's uh, something. <laughs> look at this. That's the, yeah. Uh, so anyway, I think like all those things get assembled in a network that's bigger than any one individual. Uh, and I think that's kind of the important point that I kind of want to touch on. Okay. So networks of truth networks is yeah, what we're going to be returning to. I here. think so. Okay, cool. um, Technology. Yeah. So and, I think and suspicion. Yeah, yeah. So I think cool. like this really allows us uh, to think about the theories, the conspiracy theories that have existed over a long time, like, uh, over, like longer than any one individual's life. Uh, and that kind of shows that there's a political economy in conspiracies okay. that exists. So I guess like the technology, politics, economic interplay, uh, is kind of what I want to touch on. Okay, cool. So, wow, there's a lot to chew in there. Yeah, there are um, quite a bit. And it's interesting, man. Like, I put this together, and then I kind of gave it to Phil, and he helped me organize it. And a lot of the themes that I mentioned, you're also bringing up. So this is going to make for a good episode, I yeah. think. Um, so I want to particularly focus on the sociocultural and political context of these times as reflected through conspiracy theories and... Um, how conspiracy theories are constructed. So by looking at conspiracy theories, how can we understand society, culture, and politics better? Yeah, yeah. And then the major themes I wanted to uh, hit on is uh, tension, anxiety, uncertainty about the future. And um, Yeah, for sure. That's a big point. And kind of this process of using conspiracy theorizing as a way to get more certainty about uh, which is always an unknowable, uncertain future. Right. Right. Yeah. So tensions and anxieties and uncertainty. Um, I'm also going to be bringing up the the truth fact sort of divide um, issues around belief, personal discrediting, um, how certain people are cast as like, quote unquote, crazies. Yeah. I think is really interesting. Yeah. I'm going to bring the it up. The subjectification of the conspiracy theorist. Yeah. And how you delegitimize a conspiracy theory and theorist. By just saying they've oh, oh gone yeah. lost their minds or whatever. The legitimacy right? of it is a really interesting kind of vantage point to see it. Exactly. So just sort of like fact and reality, and uh, honestly, just a whole bunch of phenomenological themes. Yeah, well, I, it wouldn't <laughs> there be it you is. without it. <laughs> you got uh, me. Wouldn't be you without it. No, it's that, like he's listening to my thoughts, folks. <laughs> uh, it seems like we're really complementary. Yeah. In, in the things that we're going to talk about. Yeah, it's almost spooky. Yeah, it is a little spooky. Uh, <laughs> but I have to give credit where credit is due, folks. Uh, we've been working, Matt and I have been working on this episode for several weeks now. But over the last week, uh, week and a bit, uh, I've really just thrown it at you, Matt, and said basically run with it. So I have to say thank you. You pretty much did this uh, last week's episode as well on the museums. Yeah. Uh, helped you out a bit at both, but, you know, some serious hat tipping here. Thanks, man. I'm just returning the favor, man. Yeah. I appreciate all your hard work, too. Oh, we're having a little Aww. moment here. This beer is amazing, <laughs> gotta crack by the another. way. <laughs> this beer, maybe have to crack another one. <laughs> this beer is great. It's uh, nice and nutty, full-bodied. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, okay, so on that note, 
uh, a, a few things about the references uh, that you actually used. Yeah, sure. So um, Phil sent me um, four, and I picked kind of two out of there. There is one um, by Robert A. Goldberg. It's from 2010, and it's um, the John O'Sullivan Memorial Lecture. Um, it has an American focus and also a cultural focus, and I think Phil will read out a quote from it in a little yep, bit. I do. Yeah. Um, and it's called The um, Enemies Within, The Conspiracy Culture of Modern America. Um, and I use that for some definitions and some background information. And then we also found a really good PhD thesis from uh, a student named Dean uh, Bellinger, B-A-L-L-I-N-G-E-R. And he's from, okay, the University of Waikato, and that is in New Zealand. Zealand. I'm going to spell that. W-A-I, I I believe there's a space, K-A-T-O. Good luck. Um, So I use both sources for background information, and then I found that, I feel like we both know a lot about these conspiracies, we started to develop our own definitions and typologies as we went. Yeah. Um, But Matt, I started talking in the intro about some of the history of the terms that we're going to use, but really, uh, what is the difference between conspiracy and supernatural? It's something that I've always kind of seen. In my mind, there's a distinction, Um, and it seems that sometimes they get used interchangeably, but um, they seem to be talking about an array of things. Okay, so I would distinguish them first by what the thing is that they're talking about, actually. So when I think supernatural, um, I think Bigfoot, Yeti, um, but not aliens, and I'll tell you why in a second. Okay. Um, and anything that's, you know, goblins, zombies, like that sort of thing. Okay. Um, where... Where I think uh, Aliens is interesting is that it blends the so-called supernatural with the the fact-based or the material. For one, obviously there is aliens out there somewhere. There's just too many planets. That's just my opinion. Well, you mean like uh, sentient life outside of Earth. Yeah, and they may not be the typical gray alien that maybe landed in some desert somewhere. But um, I think that's a nice way to blend the two. So like ghost stories and those sorts of things. So sentient non-human sentient things yeah or I, I whatever think non-human sentient things is a good way to distinguish okay. it too um because um honestly man i mentioned on a previous episode but i'm a sort of a supernatural kind of cat and i give credence to like ghosts i i have a ghost experience that maybe in the conclusion we'll uh we'll oh, mention <laughs> maybe a patio session on that one. oh yeah that'd be good patio it has session. to be done during the day it's approaching night right now when yeah. we're recording yeah, and i'm gonna get listen. freaked the fuck out yeah, if you start talking ghost about stories <laughs> yeah uh, okay, but how does that relate to conspiracy theories then? And like I'm putting the emphasis on the theory part of the conspiracy. Okay, so I like that you're putting the emphasis on the theory. So whenever it's a supernatural theory and there's a financial component there and then you can tease out the motivation there a little bit, that's when it starts blending over into like what a lot of conspiracy theories do too. So if the mm. person is trying to sell you something, mm. sell you on some tour of Lake Okanagan to sure. see the Ogopogo, um, that's when it sort of yeah. crosses over. Yeah. Buying books on it as well. And, um, so do you think that distinguishes between hoaxes and yeah. conspiracy theories? Yeah. See, this is another thing that I wanted to bring up. So like, how would you distinguish a, a hoax from a supernatural, from a conspiracy theory? Like, yeah. I think we should sort of say that and then shelve supernatural and hoaxes. Till, yeah. I think, like, I think supernatural is definitely yeah. something else. Yeah. So we're talking about this to almost like put it to the but, side. But almost. I think the hoax is very, is probably it's closer cousin to the conspiracy theory than supernatural. And like, yeah, I think so too. I think that I, for me, what distinguishes between a hoax and a conspiracy theory is 
the kind of evolution of the thing. So if it's a kind of a one-off, like, you know, you post a Photoshopped video, it's a hoax. But if the theory enrolls many different actors, institutions, there becomes a network around it, fact-finding, you know, Mm -hmm. that kind of stuff enters into the territory of a conspiracy theory. Yeah, it's almost like a, a political economy emerges around this idea. And it's almost like the... I really think the monetary aspect is really important. And then you, because it gets you thinking about what the people's intentions are, right? Because the difference between sort of finding truth, like a conspiracy theory might, and I found the truth, now go buy my book. I think that is the key sort of difference. Yeah, and like for me, a hoax is something that is intentionally created uh, to create some sort of um, response. Yeah. So I'm going to Photoshop this video to show that a flying saucer has landed in, um, you know, this baseball field, for example, that's a hoax. Yeah. But the thought that this baseball field is built on an ex-military base that housed aliens and that kind of stuff, that could become a conspiracy theory. Yeah, and it's almost like the the hoaxes are intentionally created to um, uh, mislead people. And then there's also this entire other economy of debunking hoaxes, right? Because sometimes hoaxers will put their hoax out there to discredit conspiracy theorists. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. And a lot of the um, so called um, uh, critical people or the skeptics is yeah, what they'll skeptics, call themselves. Yeah. They'll create hoaxes to discredit conspiracy theorists. Yeah. There are camps uh, that are sometimes vehemently opposed to each other's views. Like, would you say you have more respect for conspiracy theorists or hoaxers? Yeah, neither. Really? Honestly, what about neither. people who believe in Sasquatch? Oh, they're cool. Okay, cool. Then I can come come back up next week. Yeah, you you can come back. (laughs) Okay, so those are some like definitions. This is what a conspiracy theory is not. So what is a conspiracy theory? Yeah, so I got a quote from uh, Goldberg about American conspiracies. And we're talking about probably North American context in particular here. And like this show is basically Western thought around conspiracy theories. Yeah, for sure. Uh, I think uh, Eastern and some old uh, world like folklore and stuff is, like this. Is That's a whole different, different thing. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, and I think, you know, this definition is pretty good and it captures what we're going to talk about. Uh, and it brings us to our first example of conspiracies nicely. Okay, cool. So, so the quote is, here's the general scenario. Hidden groups, intelligent, diabolical, and cunning move and shape American history. Financial catastrophes, assassination, terrorism, and deceit are their means. Wealth and power are their ends. Nothing is random or the manner of, or a matter of coincidence. Conspiracy theorists give no credence to chance, bureaucratic process, or miscalculation. For the conspiracy-minded, everything can be explained. All the dots can be connected. The world is coherent and ordered with a vengeance. Their world is void of mistakes, ambiguities, and misunderstandings. For them, the devil is always in the details. Matt, it's no coincidence that this episode is being released on September 11th, uh, but before uh, there were government plots to bring down buildings publicly, there were plots to cover up some stuff in secret. And here I'm talking Operation Paperclip. Nazi scientists, some of them tied to war crimes, including horrific concentration camp experiments, brought to the U.S. in a secret program to advance American security interests during the Cold War. It sounds like the plot of a film drama, but it actually happened, and on a large scale. The story is told in the new book, Operation Paperclip. Author and journalist Annie Jacobson joins us now. Welcome to you. Thank you. So these were top scientists in the German war effort, 
sought out by the U.S. military in, as the war was coming to an end. That's right. These were Hitler's top weapons makers, and Operation Paperclip became a classified military program to bring them to the United States. It also had a public face, so there was, on the one hand, the truth about the program kept secret, and on the other hand, the idea that we'll tell the, the public that these are the good Germans. And, uh, the good Germans, but they were dedicated Nazis, mm -hmm. the ones you write about. Uh, we should say there, there are many, 1,600 in, in yes, all, right? Yes. You document about 21 of them, dedicated Nazis, some, as I said, involved in horrific stuff. What they did was known, right, to the people who were, to the Americans who were seeking them out. Certainly to the American military intelligence officers mm -hmm. who were interviewing them. The idea that they were involved in war crimes was really n necessary to be kept secret, and that's exactly what happened. And so in the book, I think I unveil a lot of the truth about this program that has remained clouded for decades. So give us an example of one of, of, one of the figures that intrigued you. Well, I think one of the worst case scenarios was that the United States military made the decision to bring J Walter Schreiber. This was Major General Dr. Walter Schreiber, the Surgeon General of the Third Reich. He wound up at a military facility in Texas. And doing what? Well, in, during the war, Dr. Schreiber had been involved in uh, the vaccine program for the Reich, which sounds like a nice program, but it was actually a program to uh, work on protecting German soldiers from these biological weapons that were also being manufactured. So he was involved in war crimes and concentration camps. He became a prisoner of the Soviets and then defected to the United States, we saw him as someone who we absolutely wanted here for his knowledge. So in the United States, it still remains unknown what exactly he did, only that he worked for the U.S. Air Force in Texas. You know, this becomes, of course, a story of, of practical versus ethical choices, right? To whether to decisions made, whether to look the other way or forget about the past mm -hmm. in order to advance and gain advantage over the Soviets, it should, should be said, during the Cold War. Absolutely. I mean, the Cold War got hot very quickly, mm -hmm. and the Soviet threat was this foreboding menace. And the idea was, certainly at the Pentagon and among the Joint Chiefs of Staff who were really running this program, was if we don't get these Nazi scientists, surely the Soviets will. Was there much debate at the time about, about the ethics of it? Absolutely, there was a debate. And I think that's what makes the narrative so compelling, because you have some people including high-ranking generals at the Pentagon who are loath to work with Hitler's former scientists. Mm -hmm. And you have others who say, this must be done and it will be done. You said we, we don't really know much about uh, the case of Walter Schreiber, what he did. Mm -hmm. Some of them we do know, right? And the very famous cases, uh, most famous, is v Werner von Braun. Yes, he came here. He was the head of our rocket program and brought 114 fellow V2 rocket makers with him. And this program, again, had a very beneficent face. Um, only now do we know the facts are very different about what those scientists were involved in at the end of the war in what was called the Nordhausen Slave Labor Factory, uh, deep in the tunnels that you had concentration camp pris prisoners building the V2 rockets. So in a case like that and others where we know that they, they did a they did accomplish things mm -hmm. for the U.S. when they came here. Then the question, and you write this, 
does accomplishment cancel mm -hmm. out past crimes? That, I think, is the conundrum of Operation Paperclip. Mm -hmm. And I hope that people come to the, their own conclusion about that, because certainly uh, the idea that you would excuse some of this horrific, horrific behavior during the war becomes, uh, you know, that big moral question. And what, and what happened to these guys in the end? A number of mm -hmm. them just lived out their days quite well here in the U.S. You know, the obituary for Dr. Theodore Benziger in the New York Times, I think, kind of sums it up. He died in 1999, and the New York Times louds him as a, a, a good German scientist who's dedicated his life to the, mil the U.S. military. It leaves out the fact that he worked with Himmler very closely during the war and was actually on the original list of Nuremberg war crimes trials. And yet, he was released into U.S. custody and came to the United States. So this idea that you can just whitewash someone's past, I think is important to look into and to investigate so that that truth can be reconciled. All right, it's a fascinating story. Operation Paperclip, the secret intelligence program that brought Nazi scientists to America. Annie Jacobson, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. So what we see in the example of Paperclip is, I think, um, a really good example of how truth uh, works to provide the basis of all conspiracy theories. And I think that true element in a, a conspiracy is uh, really important, not only because it validates the claims of the, of the conspiracy theorists, but it provides a legitimacy to the exercise of fact finding. And I, and I like, you know, as we heard in the clip, um, the fact finding mission of people who are investigating paperclip is primordial to their existence. Uh, you know, reams and reams of released documents is what provides the basis for these theories. Yeah, and it's um, just like that Goldberg quote that you mentioned, it's um, connecting the dots and exactly. finding the coherence, yep. right? Yep. Yep. And Paperclip is really interesting because um, all of a sudden the Americans were, uh, alongside the Soviets, um, they were all of a sudden excelling in rocket technology. And so people could see the technology that's happened. And it's not out of the blue that you get good at something like this. Yep. And then almost finding the facts to fit the theory that you already have to start with. It's oh, like, that's an interesting take. Yeah. You know, so I, I find that interesting about conspiracy theories. You start with the theory and then you find the facts to, to support it. I mean, in this example, it's uh, documented. It is a, a government truth that the Nazis were being brought over to America that they're uh, hired, and then that their hiring process was suppressed, right? Yeah, and like uh, Werner von Braun, yeah, um, he was the main one who came over with the Americans. And interestingly enough, the Soviets had a similar program. Yeah, I didn't know this. It was called Operation Oso... Okay, I'm just going to spell it. O-S-O-A-V-I-A-K-H-I-M. Osovakim. Yeah, and if you go to the Wikipedia page on, like, uh, Paperclip, you can go down and see it at the bottom there and follow the links. Um, but it was uh, basically like Paperclip. It was a Soviet equivalent. So right after um, Berlin was taken, the Allies and the Soviets just grabbed scientists. And the British had a similar program to yep. this, and so did the French. Yeah, so like you see the creation of a network yes, exactly. uh, of scientists. Quite literally. Yeah. That, you know, if you think of the scientific uh, mind, you don't necessarily associate it with nation states. But what the conspiracy theorists are doing is taking the scientific endeavor of uh, a person who is operating under a certain regime 
and mobilizing that regime into where they are now. Yeah, exactly. It's like they're co-opting science and the findings of science and then applying it to a military complex. And it's like science is supposed to be apolitical. And, and But, you know, like here you see a perfect example of taking science and putting it right into the military. So this is almost like the basis of future conspiracies, this interplay between the government, the military and science. Yeah. yeah. And like um, just before we move on, I'm not going to say, you know, I'm not saying that what happened and what these scientists did in Nazi Germany was right. You know, I think they worked on very devastating programs that hurt a lot of people. Um, oh, yeah. I don't but, think that's like a crazy statement. Phil. Yeah. yeah but, for sure. but I think, you know, out of the 1600 that came over, right. there were some whose contributions uh, to Hitler and what he was doing were probably quite minimal. Uh, mm. And they probably were unintended. And we've talked about the unintended consequences of research in public scholarship episode yes, that we did. Yes, that's what I was going to um, add to. Yeah. So, you know, just having been from Germany in the time of Hitler does not make you someone Some necessary. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's like um, with the more modern cases of, um, you know, like say a guard at a camp. I don't, we don't have to get into the debates on how complicit they were, but um, going after these old guards who were just, you know, enlisted into this service or whatever. Right. Yeah. So, Phil. Picture yourself, you're a rancher, it's 1947, yeah. and you just see what looks like a rocket shoot across yeah. the horizon. Oh, God. You sort of notice that it hits the horizon yeah. on a ranch okay. in New Mexico. Oh, geez. And you drive out there in your pickup truck. Yeah, I'm out there. You Probably see a bunch drunk. of debris. Would you pick up the debris? No. No, no? I, wouldn't, I would not go to that. Well, there's a rancher that would. Oh, boy. Yes. And ladies and gentlemen, I am talking about Roswell, New Mexico. Roswell, New Mexico. It's as quiet and peaceful today as it has been for decades. But on July 8, 1947, that tranquility was shattered by a local newspaper headline. Air Force captures flying saucer on ranch in Roswell region. The story described wreckage of a flying disc found near a place called Corona and was based on a press release written by the public information officer at Roswell Air Base, Lieutenant Walter Hoth. This building here, uh, building number 84, is a building, I believe, that they brought materials from the Corona crash and stored them in here temporarily. The chief intelligence officer at the base, Major Jesse Marcel Sr., was sent out to the ranch to collect the crash debris and transport it to the Army Air Force headquarters for examination. In the meantime, newspapers all over the western United States picked up the story. But before Marcel had landed his plane and strange cargo, the Air Force issued a second bulletin. By the time the B-29 with Jesse Marcel and some of the wreckage got to the headquarters two hours after they left in Fort Worth, Texas, the fix was already in to kill the story. The second press release was far different from the first saying the wreckage was actually from a weather balloon. Could the Army's top intelligence investigators have committed such a basic blunder, failing to recognize the mundane remains of a weather balloon when they first encountered it? No, says nuclear physicist and part-time UFO researcher Stanton Friedman, who's been investigating the Roswell crash for over a decade. He says that while Marcel was in the air, the Roswell base commander, Brigadier General Roger Rainey, got orders from Washington to cover up the incident. And what he did was arranged for the wreckage of a weather balloon, the radar reflector on a weather balloon. And for a while, the saucer saga was forgotten, and might have remained so if Major Marcel hadn't rekindled the fire in 1980. Just before he died, Marcel admitted that the weather balloon story had been fabricated to hide the truth. 
he told Walter Hott there really was a saucer crash. He made statements to the effect that it was nothing of this world. It couldn't be bent, torn, cut, uh, pierced, <laughs> burned. Uh, he went through a whole list of them. He said, we just don't have the technology to produce material like I brought in from that ranch. The government steadfastly maintains that there never was a crash near Roswell. But Friedman contends his research shows there was not just one, but two UFO crashes that day, the result of a spectacular mid-air collision. Which brings us to our close encounter of the third kind. Friedman says wreckage of the second craft landed some 200 miles away from the first. And this time, there were survivors. When I first came up to the, the craft, the creatures were laying like this in a line side by side and the live one was was over here gerald anderson says he was five years old when he and his family came across the unearthly wreckage and bodies and my dad was kind of oh, right about here and he was sitting like this my uncle ted was standing more over here kind of leaned over like this and we're talking to this creature Anderson's story matches that of others who were in the area at the time. With the help of hypnotherapy, he's been able to remember the encounter with startling detail. His description matches those from people who claim to have seen aliens. Four feet tall, grayish skin, large eyes, long skinny arms and fingers. Anderson recalls two aliens were dead, a third dying, and a fourth alien survivor seemed to be trying to communicate. Then just suddenly he turned and he looked at me. And when that happened, all kinds of things just started happening inside my head. I, I, I started getting sensations of tumbling and falling and an awful loneliness, like there was no way he could possibly get back to where he came from. Anderson says that within a matter of minutes, the military arrived, sealing off the area. The civilians at the site were threatened with bodily harm if they talked. Nevertheless, in the past 20 years, hundreds of witnesses have come forward, some daring to speak, only on their deathbeds. Out in the New Mexico desert, there's no longer any trace of alien craft. Stanton Friedman says the story can't be covered up forever. There were simply too many witnesses. We have testimony from over 200 people concerned with these events, people who handled the wreckage, people who described the bodies, people who were had direct orders, military orders, to do this, that, or the other thing. We have consistent testimony that in a court of law would convict anybody of a crime. Even with the overwhelming amount of testimony, the government has refused to acknowledge that either crash ever happened. None of the debris has surfaced, neither have any official documents, and most of the first-hand witnesses have died. As for the captured alien, the most often told stories suggest that he lived for a few years at a military installation and then died of an unexplained illness in the early 50s. Wow. Uh, sounds like it's a perfect time for our next beer, man. Yeah, it is, man. <laughs> so, uh, you hear that crack there? Uh, we are drinking Ransack the Universe. It's a Hemisphere IPA, and it's from Collective Arts Brewing, and it's got a fun little alien on the front, so I thought it would be perfect for Roswell. And that's a Canadian microbrew from Hamilton. You got it. Uh, but in the last clip, Matt, uh, we heard why Roswell became such a focus. Uh, it's rare to have such accounts of evidence. Uh, lack of government experience or knowledge of how to cover up effectively is also present. 
So there were false accounts, conflicting accounts, and these got picked up as clues that a cover-up was existing. So it seems to me like the network of truth in this example isn't solid enough yet. The tale didn't have enough actors to be able to form a solid perspective, which leads still to this day to the existence of multiple camps who promote their tale, their story of what happened there. And it seems to me like we can analyze from a sociological and anthropological perspective Roswell by saying the truth claims just weren't solid enough from any one person. Yeah, that's cool that you're mentioning truth claims. Um, first off, let's just uh, get a little quick cheers. Oh, yeah, cheers. Here. Okay, so truth claims. Mm, it's got a nice nose on it. Eh? I've never had a Hemisphere IPA. Oh, that's good. That mm. is delicious. Yeah, that's a really active hop on there. That is, whoa. Yeah, that's very active. Um, okay, so truth claims. Uh, getting back to it here. Um, so I think it's very fascinating with Roswell. I picked it because um, 1947 is super early. And you almost see that the government didn't have institutions in place to keep yeah, things secret exactly, and yeah. to either quell uh, something yeah. or put out their own coherent narrative, right? So with Roswell, there's actually a shit ton of evidence, a lot of witnesses. This guy, uh, the rancher here, W.W. Um, w. Mac uh, Brazel, he drove out there in his pickup truck, grabbed a whole bunch of debris, brought it back, emptied it out onto his kitchen table and had his yeah. son pick through it with him. They were yeah. looking at you know, this and that, there's bodies. Um, so this is actually what they call, like, I'm pretty sure I'm right about this, and somebody please fact check me, I guess. Um, but a close encounter of the the third kind. And that is because there was a physical evidence left on the landscape. So there was burn marks from the crash site. Yeah. There was not only the wreckage, but bodies as well. Yeah, Live And body, then right? there was also eyewitnesses seeing it streaking across the sky. So it was flying objects yeah, as well. As we heard, over 200 witnesses yes, exactly. uh, saw something yeah. related to it. Now, where I kind of, uh, where I twig, where I get interested is some saw a light, some saw a beam, mm. some saw, you know, uh, you know, a shadowy figure, some saw an alien in yes. all its forms, right? Yeah. So like the conflicting accounts of what those 200 witnesses saw leads again to the inability to suppress any one form of account. Yeah, and if I could, just like my favorite little tidbit from the story, and there's a lot of tidbits in the story, trust me, as you heard. Um, so Dennis, the uh, town mortician, uh, met with a nurse the next day after the um, government agents sort of took the bodies away, the military agents took the bodies away. Um, and uh, the nurse was talking about um, the bodies and actually drew some pictures for him as well. So like you can see it's almost like a sieve, like that there is no tight web around this conspiracy almost. No, exactly. And like uh, I think, you know, my some of my main thoughts around it is that Roswell and I'm going to bridge in Area 51 into this uh, was a key focal point for future political conspiracies. Absolutely. Uh, because as you said, Matt, it combined the fantastical with the material. We yeah. have stuff, we have imagination. Uh, we almost have a perfect storm combination of technology and truth claims. Yes, yeah. Uh, and uh, so we found a craft, or at least pieces of it. We have bodies, or at least accounts of bodies. And then we have something like mind melding. And uh, what I mean by this is the hypnosis. So as we heard in the clip, uh, hypnosis as a science was being considered uh, something serious around the time. Uh, and hypnosis was used to reveal the secrets of the people, uh, those witnesses, right? Yes, that's true. They use hypnosis on the rancher's son. Exactly, particularly. yeah. Yeah, for sure. So what we have is uh, also the military on the scene during a time that the military was seen as suspicious and a wing of government. Uh, and here, like, we have to really think back 
And it's the first time in American history where such massive amounts of research funding were being given to the military. And all of this was done in secrecy, really. No one knew what they were doing with it. So there was, you know, combined with this, this kind of fourth element, uh, and this continues today, is that technological developments are kept secret. Uh, and, but the mechanisms to protect that information uh, weren't really advanced. So lots of bits of knowledge gets leaked and talked about. So the military has all this money. We're not really sure what they're doing, but yet we're, we're hearing little bits of it, right? Mm. Um, so before any event happened at Roswell, before Area 51 became a thing, uh, if it happened or not, doesn't really matter. All the elements, sociologically speaking, were there, ripe to form a conspiracy that operates on these many levels and touches the imaginary because of its of another world, but grounded in truth claims that were very much in front of people at the time. Yeah. So, okay. Um, I wrote down uh, trust in relation Absolutely. to truth. And at yep. this time, right after World War II, the American people, and I think a lot of um, the allied nations, um, they kind of like trusted their government to a very high degree. And this was almost the first conspiracy where that chink in the armor or whatever uh, where the trust facade is starting to crumble away. And this is the why I talk about like anxieties as well. Because yeah, yeah. people start freaking out when they can't trust the government. Because yeah, we grew sure, up man. knowing that you should be able to trust the government, and especially the military. And then others like law enforcement personnel. These are the people in our society you're supposed to be able to trust the most, and they're there to protect you, right? So there's also this huge element of paternalistic sort of yeah, protection going yeah, on here. Yeah. And I think Roswell is very fascinating because it's like the people got screwed for the first time and they realized they got kind of screwed over because maybe it was just a piece of research technology or a weather balloon, as they say, but they're not telling us. And that's what the key element I think is here, the truth and the trust. Yeah. And, you know, just continuing on that notion of trust for a second here. Um, were you around train tracks growing up, Matt? Did you have train tracks? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Did you ever wonder what was in those cargo trains? No, no. No, not for once, actually. I was just too busy squishing quarters. <laughs> see, see, I would always be fascinated with what are behind those grain rail carts. Like, is it actually grain or like, what is it, right? Now, oh, I grew you up... little freak. That's awesome. Now, man. I, now, now I grew up uh, in an area of Quebec uh, that were, we were not so far away from the Oka crisis that when the Oka crisis happened, the military sent uh, their things, tanks, uh, and weaponry on the train tracks, right? You can't hear this if you're listening to the podcast, but my eyes and my eyebrows audibly went up. Yeah. I did not so, know that. So my house uh, was less than a kilometer away from uh, a train track. And, uh, you know, it would take me, you know, two minutes on bike to get to get to it. And we'd play there often. So when the Oka crisis happened, uh, we went to the train tracks to watch all these military things go by. Now, oh. what was interesting was they never made it to the site of the Oka crisis. They're in anticipation of it. And apparently this was happening all around uh, Quebec. No one was watching the stuff. So we thought mm -hmm. we were scared fucking shitless <laughs> when an army sniper stepped out of the bushes Whoa. and was like, uh, kids get away, right? Yes, and yes, I have sir. never been more scared <laughs> in my life. Oh but, yeah, no kidding. It freaked me out right now, man. But seeing the Canadian logo on the, on the things, uh, yeah. automatically I was linking the military to suspicious shit because they can hide stuff. And always in the back of my mind, the train tracks are military covert operations for some reason. 
Wow. Like yeah, it's it's weird how those associations happen, right? Yeah, and it's like imprinted. Like that's an early one, and the vividness that you uh, described it. Um, just if anyone's curious, what Phil was talking about the Oka crisis, OKA. I just encourage you to Google it. Um, it's a really yeah. big deal in Canada, but it deserves its own treatment. I'm not going to give it a short change right here. Yep. But anyway, back to the conspiracy theories. Yes. <laughs> uh, so you know, we hear some versions we'll of it down we, that rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah, we, yeah. We, we hear some versions of it. We hear other versions. I think political fear, uncertainty, uh, the desire, like this, you know, paternalistic protection is around. Um, you know, do you think that it's maybe related to not wanting to upset the political organization of the day? I think so, man. Like, I think um, though this. Uh, was also picked because it's the start of the Cold War, right? 1947. And the A-bomb was being developed. So one of my pet theories, I'm just going to throw this out there, is that aliens started visiting after they saw the detonation of the atomic bomb because they're like, we as humans have moved up a technological like ladder like rung and now we're interesting enough to check out. Now we've got nuclear and fission and stuff like this. But I do think that um, the fear of uh, the spread of communism or socialist ideas, leftist politics kind of upsetting the political norms and the political structures in America. That was the society-wide anxiety. And then it gets manifested through aliens, almost like a metaphor. So the aliens, the fear of them overthrowing our political system is actually just a metaphor for the fear of the spread of communism. Did you hear that? No, man, what? Oh, there it is again. No, man, what is that? Nothing? I can't... Never mind, never mind. What? Uh, Never mind. In a similar vein, we find many conspiracies that involve the unwillingness of research participants. Uh, Maybe one of the most horrific cases is that birth control trials. North American troops landed in Puerto Rico in 1898. Two years later, Charles Allen, first North American civilian governor, complained that there were too many Puerto Rican laborers and poor and not enough men of capital. The corporations soon arrived And by 1930, they already owned more than half of the land. Displaced from the land by the thousands, the small farmers went to work, planting and harvesting sugarcane. By 1937, unemployment had reached 37%. The Puerto Rican people, now landless, jobless, and uprooted, became what the planners called excess population. The North American governor, Blanton Winship, approved in 1937 law number 136 legalizing sterilization. Based on the principles of eugenics, which advocated the breeding of the fit and the weeding out of the unfit, namely the poor and non-white, these laws came, in Winship's words, to fill the urgent need to avoid the menace of the ever-growing population. Caribbean report. Puerto Rico, a beautiful little island with a big problem. Today, April 30th, 1945, Chief of the U.S. Tariff Commission, Mr. Dorfman, has suggested the migration of one million Puerto Ricans as part of a plan to reduce the population problem on the island. One third of all Puerto Rican women have been sterilized. So common is the method that it is simply known as la operación. 
information has been pushed really internationally as a way of population control. And there is a difference between population control and birth control. Birth control exists as an individual right. It's something that should be built into health programming. It should be part and parcel of choices that people have. And when birth control is really carried out, people are given information and the facility to use different kinds of modalities of birth control. While population control is really a social policy that's instituted with the thought in mind that there are some people who should not have children or should have very few children, if any at all. A whole series of catastrophic images were created about the population in Puerto Rico, which made you think it was a place teeming with people climbing like ants on each other's backs. At that time, there were about 654 people per square mile in Puerto Rico. Most of the people that left landed in Manhattan, where the population density was then about 90,000 per square mile. I was working in Puerto Rico in the medical school in those years, you know, the decade of 1960 to 1970. And one of the things that seemed pretty obvious to us then was that Puerto Rico was being used as a laboratory, and it was being used as a laboratory for the development of birth control technology. AID's population officer in 1977, Dr. Richard T. Ravenholt, said that if U.S. goals were met, one-fourth of the world's women would be sterilized to prevent revolutions that would interfere with the financial interest of multinational corporations. Ese es el plan genocida, lo que se está planteando para Puerto Rico. October 31, 1974. Today in the United Nations, Puerto Rican independence leaders accused United States imperialists of carrying out a genocidal plan in Puerto Rico. And now, particularly, sterilizations are markedly on the increase in the United States. And if we look at where they're on the increase, on, on whom I should say they're on the increase, it's mainly minority women, that is black, Native American, and Hispanic women. And poor whites, especially in depressed areas where there is very high unemployment. At this point in time, where abortion rights are under such tremendous attack that the government is no longer funding abortions for women who cannot afford them, sterilizations are still being paid for by the government and are on the increase. It appears that sterilization as a solution to the so-called excess population in the United States is following the model set up in Puerto Rico. Okay, so I heard about birth control trials um, in a medical anthropology class, actually. Yeah. And then one of my favorite podcasts, I'm pretty sure it was Fresh Air, did an episode on it. So I encourage you to listen to that as well. Um, it's absolutely horrific. Um, you can see why I picked it because of the political dynamics. Um, but I also picked it because when you think of outsiders, whether they're racial or ethnic outsiders, um, even though Puerto Rico is uh, is kind of affiliated with America, um, they were experimented on because they were thought of as lesser than human. Right, yeah. And um, this is one of the things that comes up in medical anthropology a lot, but that's why I picked this conspiracy. So 
What are your thoughts on the uh, the conspiracy? Yeah, I, I I think I approached it from a slightly different perspective. Okay, cool. Um, so I think like as science begins to experiment with its own set of internal regulations, uh, at a time when science is being made public, uh, we see this case surface. So what I mean by internal regulations is like scientists, you know, are trying to get what they're doing made public, but at the same time, the public is increasingly being known or coming into contact with scientists are doing right so really there are no issues that arise with cases like this if no one knows about them um but the push to make science public actually leads to revealing the morality uh of the public itself right so what kind of limits uh do we have vis-a-vis science so this shows us that science really is a two-way street it's not only about experiments it's about how these experiments are understood and read by the public so with cases like this, it, you know, they happened before. This isn't the first time that something like this happened, but it's the first time really that it becomes known publicly. Yeah, and I have another uh, example that we're going to talk about shortly, so we'll save that. But I love that we are talking about um, the findings of science being made public and the public becoming aware of science. And that two-way street, I think, is very fascinating. And that's why I picked this story Um It also gets back to this losing faith in government. So at this time, many um, scientific research um, experiments were government-funded as well. So when you find the horrific findings of these these various experiments, you start losing your faith in the government's ability to do science and medicine as well. So that's another little crumbling of the facade of a stable uh, paternalistic government. And then it's because of cases like this that today we have very strong or supposedly very strong ethics boards at multiple levels. Yeah, they're way a hell of a lot better than they were in the 60s. That's for damn sure. So you can say that ethics has developed since then, um, but there's definitely a long way to go. And one of the things, this is just popping into my head, but reconciling this history, science is not the best at... Um, it's a bit of a blanket statement, but science is not the best at um, examining its own history, its historicity. Yeah, sometimes it has a trouble doing that yeah uh but okay so the last thing i want to talk about uh, revolving on this case and this is a little bit of a challenge um we've been talking about conspiracies conspiracy theories how does this fit into what we've been describing as a conspiracy um so this was like it's funny um it was in in the open you know they had doctors there from america that would treat them uh, but then there was also a cover-up as well. They didn't want the people back in America finding out about it, but it was okay if the Costa Ricans found out about it because just like Nancy Shepard Hughes with that yeah. Irish study, it's like, who the hell is going to find out? Yeah. Well, yeah. apparently everybody because um, it's not that different. It's not that outside, quote-unquote, of America. So the, people found out rather quickly. So yeah. this was almost like the first of a series of medical experiments and government-sponsored research that went awry. And, and became uh, public. You know, similarly, we can think of things like the polio vaccine. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and we can think of things like the uh, Rockefeller Foundation's involvement in the appearance of hookworm in uh, Latin America. Yeah, and totally. We can also think about the Tuskegee experiment, which we're going to talk about now. In July of 1972, the Washington Star newspaper broke the story about the controversial Tuskegee Institute syphilis experiment. For 40 years, from 1932 until 1972, the U.S. Public Health Service, in partnership with Tuskegee, secretly studied the effects of untreated syphilis in African-American men in Alabama. 
600 black men, 399 with syphilis and 201 without the disease, were induced to participate in the experiment. Nearly all of them were poorly educated, impoverished sharecroppers. In exchange for participating, they were promised free medical exams, hot meals, and a burial stipend. The men with syphilis were not told they were infected and were not treated. Even after penicillin was discovered to be an effective cure for the disease in the 1940s. Over the course of the experiment, 128 participants died of syphilis or syphilis-related complications. In 1972, when the paper exposed the details, the experiment was still ongoing. It incited public outrage over the unethical treatment of the participants, which led to the experiment's termination that November. The following year, the NAACP filed suit on behalf of the survivors. The federal government settled the lawsuit for $10 million. It also agreed to provide survivors and their infected family members with free medical services. I picked this one because it's uh, pretty famous. Most people should know about this, and that's kind of the point. Um, normally, these trials would be done secretly, and this one was intentionally covered up. Um, it was done amongst uh, the African-American population in the South, in Tuskegee, um, and they were intentionally infected with syphilis. Yeah. And it was a longitudinal study as well. It went over something like 20 years to see the long-term effects of syphilis, not only on the individuals, but the effects that it would have on the community. So it was almost like like a disgusting medical anthropology experiment, you know? So I, I don't know. In, and like the Costa Rica experiments, it was done on a racial other group, an outsider group. And uh, again, they just thought, well, we can do this and nobody will know because who the fuck cares? But at the same time, you have university administrators you have uh, research assistants, you have a network of scholars. Someone knew. Someone had to have known what was going on. Yeah, and a lot of the criticism when it comes from academia that I've seen was around um, like disclosure and not telling them exactly what the experiment was. Not like, this is fucking disgusting. Like, right. what are you guys doing, right? And that was one of the reasons I brought this up is because there was not as much blowback on this as there should have been. Yeah. This should this should be a huge black eye that every kid learns in right. like freaking high school or something. But you just you only and if you start talking about the Tuskegee experiment, even though it's a hundred percent true, you get labeled with all these conspiracy theories, and that's another point I wanted to raise. Yeah, and it seems to me that you know the last couple that we've been talking about have actually occurred. These are actual government funded programs. Yeah. Uh, that used actual scientists yeah. uh, that, you know, hurt a certain population and then tried to suppress it, right? Yeah. So that falls into that definition of conspiracy, which is two or more people mm-hmm. gathering together in secret to try to do something. Yeah. And they usually started off as theories about a conspiracy. And then the facts come out after either in a congressional report or through leaks or just certain amount of time has passed. And then these sort of documents become made public. Um, so... Again, it's almost like they have the idea about it, and then they get proven correct afterwards. But I intentionally picked these conspiracies that almost turned out to be true um, for that very purpose, because it gets at that truth question. So, Matt, uh, this might be a good time for our next beer. 
yeah. the thematic <laughs> beer. Uh, I have uh, State of Mind, which is a Session IPA, uh, 4.4% alcohol. It is also by uh, the Collective Arts Brewing Company of Hamilton, Ontario, and uh, they got it, like awesome labels. By the, the way, the label yeah. on this one is like a Yeti, uh, and its uh, its mind is being uh, I don't know opened? connected with, opened, uh, ripped, emptied. Yeah. yeah, and he's eating like a little happy little red flower. So I don't know what the symbolism of all of this is, but it's Could very psychological. It's very yeah, it's very yeah. psychedelic anyway. And I picked that one out because we're about to talk about MK Ultra. It is one of my favorite. Uh, Little conspiracies. Um, another one that turned out to be true, but some of the details of it are a little murkier. I'm Adrian Clarkson. Tonight we report on a secret CIA research project carried out in Montreal in which mental patients felt they were used as the CIA's guinea pigs. They kept you asleep for 23 days, and while I was asleep, they were shocking the heck out of me with electric shocks. The CIA was interested in, in Dr. Cameron's work on psychic driving because it could give them an idea of where the personality could break or be stressed. The, those of us who were involved with trying to find out something about brainwashing, yes, this is, uh, this is the reason that we were interested in Dr. Cameron's work. The American Central Intelligence Agency has been accused of manipulating citizens of countries all over the world, including Canada. At the moment, a number of Canadians are considering suing the CIA. They believe they are victims of covered CIA experiments. Tonight, two Canadians who feel the past 20 years of their lives were damaged by the CIA tell their stories publicly for the first time. They believe they were part of a CIA project called MKUltra, a research project so secret that even the Canadian government was not informed that the agency was funding activities in this country. The CIA was seeking a new weapon, aimed not at the body, but at the mind. Americans became obsessed with brainwashing during the Korean War. Prisoners of war returned home denouncing the American way of life. Hearing them parroting propaganda, the CIA became convinced the communists had found the key to brainwashing. Now the Americans had to unlock the mystery of mind control. Uh, there was great worry that the Soviets had developed uh, rather esoteric and unusual methods of uh, uh, so-called brainwashing people. Uh, the purge trials... Dr. John Gittinger was the CIA's chief psychologist for 25 years. There was continued pressure put upon anybody within uh, the agency in connection with trying to explain or understand uh, brainwashing. So we were charged with rather an elaborate attempt to try to find out chemical, psychological, any kind of means <clears throat> that people could use to influence the behavior of the people. Nothing seemed too bizarre. To find out if sex could be used in spying, the agency studied San Francisco prostitutes and their clients. Using unwitting human beings as their guinea pigs, the agency tried everything. Drugs, hypnosis, electroshock. Under code names like MK Ultra, the CIA spent 25 years and $25 million on secret mind control research. Brainwashing could be a powerful ideological weapon, and the U.S. had to have it. And when the agency didn't undertake its own studies, it funded someone else's. 
Thus, the search for mind control brought MKUltra to Canada, to Montreal. Even in the Cold War years of the late 50s and early 60s, most doctors and academics would have been embarrassed to have found that an organization of spies was openly paying for their research. So the CIA set up a number of fronts, respectable foundations like the Human Ecology Fund. Sounds innocent enough, but it was run by the CIA's brainwashing experts. Here at McGill University in Montreal, the fund found three projects worth financing. They supported an extensive study of witch doctors in Nigeria. How, investigators wondered, did native healers cure mental illness? What mysterious drugs and potions did they use? ...used to bind up excited patients. A sleeping potion is then administered. Twenty years ago, the Human Ecology Fund paid for this movie. This soothes the patient's head. But it was only recently that the man who made the film found out that he had been working with the CIA's money. The author of the Nigerian study is still at McGill University. News of his connection to the CIA came as quite a surprise to Dr. Raymond Prince. Uh, I, I couldn't imagine why the CIA would be interested in my work in uh, uh, looking at uh, indigenous healers in West Africa. That seemed uh, re really strange. That was my first reaction, you know, and I, I couldn't believe that, uh, I couldn't understand how the CIA would be interested in that. Uh, because there were all kinds of, uh, of uh, beliefs that African witch doctors could put the hex on people. But anybody who makes a systematic study of what are the psychological f factors that can produce anything from having a person run amok in uh, uh, Indonesia or uh, uh, die of the sickness from a witch doctor in uh, Africa would certainly add to all of the knowledge that we were being able to accumulate about behavioral science techniques. The Human Ecology Fund also helped set up the Transcultural Psychiatric Research Review. Edited at McGill, the journal continues to publish without CIA support. The largest MKUltra research project, this one directly related to brainwashing, was carried out at the university's psychiatric hospital, the Allen Memorial Institute. Located atop Mount Royal in a mansion with the eerie name of Ravenscrag, the Allen Memorial was once the most prestigious mental hospital in Canada. The unorthodox treatments of its director caught the attention of the CIA in the mid-50s. Dr. Ewan Cameron, the first director of the Allen Memorial, ran the institute with an iron hand for 20 years. But Dr. Cameron remained an American citizen and left the Allen abruptly in 1964. He returned to the United States, where he died in 1967. An energetic, enigmatic man, Cameron was an internationally honored and respected psychiatrist, but he was not universally liked. Former colleague, Dr. Elliot Emanuel. He was uh, an authoritarian, ruthless, power-hungry, nervous, tense, angry man. Not very nice. Much of Cameron's research went on in the stables next to the main hospital building. Here he had his subjects photographed before and after treatment. Dr. Cameron may not have known that the $60,000 research grant he received from the Human Ecology Fund really came from the CIA. Rudolf Hess. Nonetheless, it now seems ironic to some that Cameron was called to the Nuremberg trials to examine Rudolf Hess. 
for it was at Nuremberg, after Nazi doctors who experimented on prisoners of war were condemned, that a code of scientific ethics was adopted. Research must be completely safe, and research subjects must give full, voluntary consent. Documents recently released by the CIA reveal what research Cameron proposed. To make patients receptive to repetitive messages, Cameron suggested using chemical agents to break down ongoing patterns of behavior, chemical agents like LSD. So as you heard there, MKUltra was a government-sponsored psychiatry-slash-military experiment. Um, it's also a conspiracy that turned out to be true, as I said before. Um, and this was also a time um, in, the, um, in the 60s when people were both being institutionalized still, so psychiatry was still very much about like the mental hospital, and then people who were in the mental hospitals in the 50s were getting out. So yeah. whether you were a participant in MK Ultra, and I got a little fun fact at the end for you on that one, um, stay tuned, um, or not, um, people were getting experiences going in and coming out of institutions, and um, they were being experimented on in similar fashions. We also hear the presence of psychedelic drugs being used, LSD in particular, and it's also a time when LSD use uh, starts to become somewhat popular, right? You have people using it recreationally, but it's not as widely known uh, then as it is today, obviously. Yeah, and LSD started out as a um, so-called mind control drug. They wanted to see what its um, military and espionage applications were, um, whether it was giving an unwilling uh, captive uh, some LSD to get them talking about their hideout and stuff, um, or uh, trying to create um, almost like um, fortune-telling or mind-reading soldiers that the CIA could use, right? So there's other splinter projects like MK Ultra that came off that was either more psychological or um, like the men who stare at goats or whatever. That's right. a perfect actually example of it. Um, so MK Ultra, I just want to stress is obviously it was not willing subjects. Um, some of these people went into like we see around Carlton all the time where um, make 10 bucks and go to a psychology experiment, but it turned out it was like MK Ultra. Yeah. Right. So that was one thing I wanted to hone in on. Um, and I think the, the cover-up was really significant. MKUltra's got a really interesting document, a, a congressional um, report that um, I'll somehow get out to everybody, but it's a fascinating read. So this was one of the first like big um, expose um, a, um, conspiracies that yeah. actually turned out yeah. to be true. And you know, what's interesting is uh, it hasn't become that of late, but the CBC kind of uh, clip that we just heard you know, really reveals uh, in a cutting edge way the implications of McGill University, uh, highly ranked, uh, very prestigious Canadian university, international university for that matter, participating in MK Ultra, but researchers not necessarily knowing that they're being funded by the CIA. And it brings back mm-hmm. to the question of research funding, ethics, and the role of researchers at the center of these sorts of things, right? Yeah, and it's um, when you start getting the military, the industrial, the government all feeding together, you start losing track of where the money is. I've heard some very smart scholars say, just follow the money if you want to tangle through these things. Yep. Just follow the money. Out, yeah. um, and as Phil was saying, like a place like McGill may not have known fully that they're participating in this wider program, right? Um, another 
reason I brought it up is because just like the um, racialized other or the ethnic other in Costa Rica, the racialized other in Tuskegee, um, MK Ultra dealt with the mentally ill, and they are other in our society as Absolutely. well. Absolutely. So yeah. again, you're seeing that it's okay to fuck around with these people's minds, but it's not okay to mess around with um, people. Uh, yeah. White people, rather. And, you know, the link between uh, the pharmaceutical industry, the military-industrial complex, and politics, um, I kind of have experience from it uh, from a different perspective, from a science and technology studies perspective, and it's the debate uh, around fluoride in water. Uh, now, the 1900s started uh, the injection of fluoride in water following uh, responses that tooth decay was lowered uh, once they injected fluoride into the water. So the public's perception was that the totally safe chemical was actually something else, something that could mind control or and was doing harm in some way. So around the 1940s, 1950s, so around the same time as the Kyoto Project, huge opposition started uh, just as more and more cities were investing in the addition of fluoride in drinking water at the suggestion of politicians and dentists. So now you have dentistry as a field starting to become very popular, research on dentistry becoming uh, more and more incorporated into practice, and government publications regarding fluoride. So you have the same sort of setup as MKUltra, right? Now, Pam Scott, Evelyn Richards, Brian Martin, all STS scholars trace these debates, and they show that it's near impossible to study the controversy as a neutral observer, that in fact, uh, scientists or, analy- or an- um, analysts like ourselves mm-hmm. Uh, of public debates take sides. So we uh, we automatically side with one of the debate or the other. So even today, there's a uh, debate around the addition of fluoride in drinking water. Uh, the cost-benefit analysis is often appealed to, but more often than not, it's some conspiratorial scheme uh, that is working to attempt to sway public perception about fluoride. So questions like, do we really know what it does? Or what are they actually putting in the water? Get asked. So trust, again, as you mentioned before, is a major theme in uh, things having to do with the pharmaceutical industry, but also how governments at all, at all levels are just horrible at telling the truth, or at least making the truth accessible and open. So I think this dynamic is also what's fueling many of the medical conspiracies debates, uh, MKUltra and beyond, again today. The, you know, why don't the government just say what they're doing? Yeah, and you see maybe in the 60s and into the 70s, um, the governments kind of get away from sponsoring medical research. Now we have a situation where you apply for a grant and they just sort of like make sure you're not a crazy person or something or you're going to really hurt people and then they just give you the money and move away. But at this time in the 50s and 60s, the government sponsored a lot of research. And what I wanted to hit on was that with the findings of MK Ultra and the Costa Rican birth control uh, studies, Tuskegee, um, you start seeing the trust in the government crumbling away and what fills that void but the pharmaceutical industry and the private right, sector, right, yeah. right? And now when you're talking about secrecy, at least governments, they uh, some of the records are supposed to be public in some manner and they may forget to retract something, but a uh, private corporation, um, no, that, they don't really have to make... They don't need to make anything in it. Exactly, no, so it's more not. secret when you get the private sector in there. Well, the you know, what's interesting is that these deals, particularly around research, uh, when it comes to government funding, now we have what is called directed public uh, funding. So that's, uh, you know, the government of the day decides that they want to support this sort of project and they just give the money. And more and more we see 
governance structures in place that limit those sorts of contributions, right? They have to go through an arm's length organization. In social sciences, something like SHRC. SHRC isn't under the purview of the government of the day. Uh, those who work at SHRC, those who are part of it, don't change when the government does necessarily, right? But in the 50s and 60s, you had direct investment. So that means that taxpayers' dollars went to the cent- central coffer and then from there directly into researchers' pockets. Yeah, and uh, coupled onto that as well is the new burgeoning field of psychopharmacology, right? Um, in the 50s and 60s, there's a real renaissance in um, uh, psychological uh, pharmaceuticals, essentially, and therapy. Um, so if you take all these together, MK Ultra, Tuskegee, and the Costa Rica birth control trials, you start seeing this kind of synergy between the government, the military, the uh, private sector. Research establishments. Research, everything. It's all coming together in these webs and networks, as you say. Like everyone. And then you're going to start to see a crumble. Um, fun fact, I promised you I yeah, mentioned this it, at the end. Uh, the Unabomber claims that he was a participant in the MK Ultra trials, and that is what made him go crazy. Was that his defense? Yeah, well, I mean... That's a horrible defense. Bro, it's the Unabomber, man. His other defense was that planes flying over his sky is what made him angry, and that's when he sent his first bomb to an airport. All right. And it was like the Connecticut airport or some shit. Speaking of the Unabomber, Matt, uh, I'm going to have to put an end to it for this week uh, before we make this episode any longer than it already is. Uh, Thank you for joining us for this part one of Networks of Conspiracies. Next week, we'll pick back up and we will talk about conspiracies from the 1980s and then deep dive into some 1990s conspiracies that all affected us before hitting on what happened on September 11th, 2001, uh, some New World Order and some Illuminati stuff in there as well. If you have questions, comments, concerns, or considerations for us, you can get into contact with us on Twitter at the underscore S-I-M underscore P-O-D. We're on Facebook at The SimPod, all one word. You can send us an email at semi-intellectual at gmail.com. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Player FM, Overcast, pretty much any podcatcher uh, you want to use. So make sure to subscribe to get all the latest episodes. And once again, coming soon uh, will be our patio sessions where Matt and I sit down and have a chat and record it and send it to you. Uh, But next week, Networks of Conspiracies, part two. Thank you all for joining us. Have a good one. Yeah, you're a little whiny. A little whiny voice. Welcome to the podcast. Welcome to Seven Intellectual Musings. My name is Matt. Hey, Matt. Hey, guys. Welcome to the show. Oh, wait. Do your best alien impression. Uh. Like, like if Matt was an alien, what would Matt sound like? Just like that, because aliens uh, communicate telekinetically, right? Fuck you. (laughs) So, (laughs) like. You fucking hate me. (laughs) So, no, okay. Your alien voice. What would be a good alien voice for Um, you? I bring you peace and love. Love. Yeah, just like the Monty Burns coming out of the uh, the woods in the uh, Halloween special on The Simpsons. Yeah.